Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth and my guest this week is journalist, coach, and marathoner Ashley Mateo. You've probably read some of her work if you're a frequent reader of, I don't know, Runner's World, Women's Running, Health. She has also written for The Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine. And Ashley recently became a six-star finisher, running all six of the Abbott World Marathon majors in her running career. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But just a quick reminder that, as scary as it seems that time is moving so quickly, fall races really are just right around the corner. So if you are looking for support and training for your upcoming fall race, no matter what distance it is, we do have one-on-one coaching spots available on our team roster if you're looking for a one-on-one coach. Also have group coaching for the half marathon and marathon, along with training plus programs, training plans, masterclasses, and all the things you need to help prepare you to run your best race. So check out runningexplained.co for all your training and coaching needs. And now here's Ashley. Ashley, welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with the big question, of course. How did you become a runner? So I did not start running until I was like, turning 30, I think it was. Um, I worked for Shape Magazine at the time. I was a journalist and I grew up as a gymnast, so I never ran more than probably a mile. Maybe in college, I would do three miles at the gym on the treadmill just because that's what I thought you had to do, you know, to stay healthy. Um, But when I was working at Shape, I got invited to participate in a half Ironman. And at first I deleted the email because I thought that's stupid. Why would I do that? <laughs> and then a coworker said she was thinking about doing it. And I thought, well, if you could do it, I could do it. And I dreaded the running the most. I thought that that would be the hardest part having to run a half marathon. So in training, I did a 10 K and then I did a half and it was okay. And then in the actual race itself, the running is what I enjoyed the most, I think, because I just felt like I had the most control over it. And There was no equipment, there was no uh, extenuating circumstances or variables like water that, you know, was terrifying. So after that, I I kept running. I liked all the, the mental health benefits of it. I liked that I was starting to find a sense of community. And so I kept running. And then in 2016, Adidas offered me an opportunity to run the Boston Marathon because I had said if I ever did anything as stupid as running a marathon, it would have to be Boston, where I went to college. And I knew Marathon Monday. I knew what an incredible experience it would be. And um, and now I've run 13 marathons. <laughs> so what I thought was going to be a one and done bucket list item <laughs> has literally changed my life. 
you know, it's so funny being on the other side of this, but I distinctly remember after my first marathon crossing the finish line and then saying to my husband, I never want to do that again. And I genuinely meant it. Like I never wanted to run another marathon ever, ever, ever again. And then yet here, here we are <laughs> multiple marathons later. But it's so funny to me when people say, oh, I just want to run this one marathon. I just want to cross it off my list as a bucket item. And like, that's it. Because oftentimes uh, I find that people get bitten by the bug and that first marathon usually usually isn't their last. Yeah. I do know a couple people who were very much one and done. They crossed it off the bucket list. They they can say they're a marathoner and they have not run a step since, which is fine. But I think there are a lot more people who finish and think, I could do that better. I think I could be smarter next time. I think I could go harder. Whatever it is, whatever hooks you. I don't know. I think that's a more common feeling when you cross that finish line. So for our listeners, because today we're talking about you being a six-star finisher, explain what that is and tell us why and when you decided to pursue that. So the six stars come with the six most prestigious international races um, sponsored by Abbott World Marathon Majors. So that is uh, New York, Boston, and Chicago in the U.S. and London, Berlin, and Tokyo internationally. And so I don't really think that I knew what they were or understood the journey to the six stars when I first started marathoning. Um, definitely not in Boston and not in New York. I, I don't think in New York in 2016, but I ran New York again in 2017 and then started looking elsewhere for other race opportunities. And that must have been when I first realized that this was a thing people did at this point not, I mean, maybe several thousand people had done it. It was nowhere near the number of runners who've accomplished this in, as of 2023. Um, but I love travel. I write about travel as well. And so it seemed like a really cool way to combine running with travel and have these really unique experiences. So, um, so 2018 was my first international race and it just kind of continued from there. The order in which you did these marathons, you started with Boston. I know you finished with Tokyo. What order did you run the rest of them in? Um, So I started with Boston, then New York, then Berlin, then London, then Chicago, and then Tokyo. Tokyo should have been number five. I was registered for 2020 and had to wait an extra, what was it, three, four years to actually run that race. And then interspersed in there is five New York marathons. (laughs) So I ran five New York marathons before I finished the six majors. So I think for a lot of people, when thinking about something like doing the six star journey, just getting into these races is a huge hurdle. How did you get into these six different races? Because they're very hard to get into. So I am very privileged, lucky, spoiled, whatever word you want to use in that sense. Um, I have been invited to do most of them through work. I am a journalist. I cover running. I've written for places like Runner's World, Women's Running, The Wall Street Journal, Men's Journal, um, all kinds of publications in that vein. And so typically I am invited to run one of these races and ideally share my experience through articles, through social um any, any way in which I want to share the journey. Um, 
it is it's very much a privilege. I want to acknowledge that right off the bat. I know people spend decades trying to get into these races. And it's interesting because I don't know if I hadn't had those opportunities, would I even have started running? I don't know. I was not a runner. And so being able to get into these races as a non-runner at the start is what really got me interested in the sport and having these experiences made me start committing to races on my own. So now I don't always rely on brands to get me in the door. And it's not always some fancy press trip where, you know, they're, they're covering every single element of the trip. There have been a couple of times where I've just gotten a bib and been able to run under, you know, under the sponsor, but it's all on my own. So it's very much a privilege. I realize that. <laughs> Just to me, logistically, I'm thinking like I, you know, I love to run London. I'd love to run Berlin. Um, and I think, you know, being a certain in a certain, you know, kind of time, uh, you know, range in the U.S. marathons, like I qualified for and ran Chicago, like I qualified for and ran Boston. But like you, you can't do that with London. You can't do that with Berlin. I think you there is a qualifying time for Tokyo, but it is very fast. Yeah, I think it's important to call out the charity aspect of them. I have a lot of friends who've gotten into London, especially via charity. Um, Tokyo is much harder. I think this year there were 38,000 runners and only 3,700 or 3,800 Americans. So that one is very tough to get into, especially since it hasn't been held for the past four years. Um, but I don't want to discount the charity angle for a lot of these races. Um, I get a lot of negativity on certain social, uh, platforms about the fact that Boston was my first marathon and I ran a 428, which is by the way, very much the average marathon time in the U S. So, um, people who are kind of negative about, recognizing that people run that time in the Boston Marathon. I just want to remind them that 20% of the Boston Marathon field is charity runners. And so they have every right to be there as the people who qualify. You were getting pushback because you ran a time that was what people didn't think it was fast enough for you to be in Boston. Yes. People get very confused about how somebody could run Boston without a qualifying time. Obviously, my situation was slightly different in that I ran with the sponsor. Adidas is the race sponsor. But 20% of that field is charity runners who do not run the qualifying times. And they have a huge amount of money to fundraise. And they deserve to be there even if they're running a six, seven-hour marathon. So I think it's important to call that out. Yes, I was lucky enough to get in through work, but other people work very hard to raise the funds needed to be in some of these races, even if they can't run the qualifying times. That I have, I have a lot of very strong negative emotions towards people who think that and then would say that to you. Um, mostly because you don't know what any, first of all, yes, if you registered for the race and it doesn't matter what time you are running, you belong there. I hate mm -hmm. the gatekeeping about pace in mm -hmm. our sport that you don't, it, you're less deserving or you somehow don't belong because you don't run fast enough. That's, that is the worst side of our sport, I think. And it's, it's very toxic and it's very damaging for a lot of people to hear that kind of, 
um, messaging. And like, I don't, I don't know how else to combat it except to say that it's terrible, but like there are a ton of people out there who genuinely believe that and will like defend with their dying breath. The fact that they don't think slow people should run X race. Mm -hmm. It's deeply toxic. And I try not to engage with that on social media because I don't think it needs to be said, if you are in the running world, you should be very well aware that people get into these races via charity and other methods. Um, And I think if you are being negative to somebody else about their running journey on social media, or I mean, God forbid in person, I hope nobody would ever say that to somebody in person, but I think you need to look at your own relationship with running and really ask yourself some hard questions because there's no room for that kind of negativity in a sport that to me is all about community. It, 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 unfortunately, I think that being slightly anonymous on the internet, like I know that I, again, I hope, I hope that there are, there are some things that I've seen people say that I feel like being able to hide behind the facade of the screen allows them to, you know, I don't know, relinquish some sort of responsibility for what they say. But like, I hope to God you would never say it to somebody's face. But like, why would you say it at all? If you wouldn't say it to their face, why would you say it? And like, we're not even talking about the thought patterns and the, the beliefs that go into having those kinds of thoughts at all. But like, to it's just it really, it really grinds my gears. And it really <laughs> makes me upset because there are so many people who enter this sport, who maybe the first thing they're confronted with is that sort of gatekeeping and pace shaming. And then they immediately think, I don't belong here. And mm-hmm. then they leave and they never come back, right? And then that's it. Like we've lost a runner. We've lost somebody who could have had the most amazing transformational experience about being a runner because some, it's bizarrely seems to be a, mostly men in my experience. I don't know how you experience this on the internet as a woman, but um, people who who are like, no, you don't belong here because you're not running eight minutes per mile or seven minutes per mile, whatever their, their arbitrary pace is. And I can't, I know this is like not the topic <laughs> of our conversation, but I think when we're talking about, you know, the way that we explore prestige and value in these large races i think it's really important to have this conversation about it's not just about only runners who deserve to be there because of how fast they can run that is not the point of these races well and i think that fast is relative right i mean i'm almost an hour faster than i was when i ran my first marathon and that would not have happened if I hadn't run that first marathon through work, through an opportunity that I was given to help other runners see that you don't have to have this long history with the sport in order to do something like that. And I think it's really important for all runners to remember that certain words can mean different things to different runners. I mean, when I say I'm running easy, my easy pace is very different from the easy pace of somebody who can run a two and a half hour marathon. And when I say I'm running fast, that might be different from my friend who runs a five hour marathon. So I think knowing your audience and understanding that those terms are very relative is really important in making this sport as inclusive as possible. And so Boston is the only one of the marathon majors where the only, it seems like the only ways to get in are either to qualify or to register as a charity runner. And then there's like a very small, like a cup, like a very small section of the race, which are kind of like sponsorship bibs or you're an elite, like you were literally invited and you're paid to be there. Mm -hmm. And you can get in with like an international tour operator, but all these other races, um, 
New York has a lottery. Chicago has a lottery. London has a lottery. Berlin has a lottery. Am I correct in saying yep. that? I know a lot of people who've gotten in in the past couple of years via lottery to Berlin. Also, I think it's easier to get in via lottery if you sign up with a team. So you can sign up with two or three people. And this is totally anecdotal. I don't know, you know, what the race organizers think, but um, I know people have had some more luck registering as a team as opposed to res- registering on their own. All these tips and tricks. See, you've been through this. Now we can talk about <laughs> how to maximize the experience. All right. So you ran six marathons. Of the six, which is your favorite race? New York, hands down. I've run it five times. I've literally run I mean, it you, almost you as run many it. times yeah, as the say. entire. <laughs> All right. So favorite international race, favorite non-U.S. major? London. Why? London, I think, was very close to the energy of New York. And I don't know if it's, I mean, it's a smaller race. Um, I forget what the total number is, somewhere in the the 40,000s, I think. Um, But I think there was something about the streets of London. It, It felt a lot smaller, a lot more condensed. And so the energy felt higher than Berlin. Um, Tokyo, I'll come back to because that was just a very different experience kind of across the board. But I just remember being so in the zone in London and just flying through those streets. I just, I felt so comfortable for like 21 miles and the crowds were wild. And by the time I got to that point of the marathon where you're like, oh, this is really far, isn't it? Like a marathon is really long. I was like, you're almost there. Like, there's, there's Big Ben, there's Westminster, like you just got to get into the park. So I just think the energy, for me, the energy of a marathon is really important. I really feed off that. And so, you know, New York is incomparable, like nothing, nothing can match the energy that you get through the streets of New York. Boston comes close, but London was also very high up there. I love that you say it's a smaller race than say it's only like 40,000 people, but that's, I mean, for a major, you know, uh, New York is 50,000, right? I mean, these are huge races. I think New York's biggest year was close to 60,000 and it's the spectators, the number of spectators that come out for New York, I think are in the millions, like at least over a million. Um, Same with Boston for that matter. So you just get this incredible energy and those two cities really... I mean, you just experienced Boston Marathon Monday. It's it's a state holiday. <laughs> like nowhere else does that. So the city really loves it. And the same vibe occurs in New York. It's just people love the marathon, even if they have nothing to do with running. But coming out and cheering, getting brunch while the runners are coming by. I mean, it, you just everyone loves it. Everyone comes out for it. It feels like a really special day in both of those cities. And London was the closest I experienced to that, even though I don't know that city as well. So logistically running a a race like this comes with its own set of challenges. You know, if you're traveling to a race that's that large, you might be crossing time zones. You're probably staying in a hotel or at an Airbnb. Um, Logistically, which of these races did you think was the toughest and which did you think was the smoothest? Hmm. Um, Tokyo was the hardest. Just logistically, the jet lag, I don't remember how many time zones did I cross. It was a 16-hour time difference. It was an 11 and a half hour flight to get there. Um, The food is just different from what I'm familiar with. So 
there were a lot more variables going into that race that I was worried about. Um, Berlin and London, I mean, there's also jet lag that comes with those. It's a little easier if you're coming from the East Coast, but um, I didn't find those to be as challenging as Tokyo just in terms of getting my head straight before the race. And I think the other thing that comes with the majors, even the domestic ones, is these are massive, massive weekends. I mean, I'm sure you felt this in Boston. I was so glad I wasn't running this year because I was running around like a crazy person from, you know, every brand activation to the expo, to media dinners, to shakeouts, to, I think I went to four different shakeouts. Um, I ran the 5k on Saturday. It's just wild. And so to, you want to participate in those things, especially when you're going to a race like London or Berlin or Tokyo, this may be a once in a lifetime thing. So of course you want to take advantage of everything that the race weekend has to offer, but oh my God, is it draining? I don't know how people who were doing what I was doing this weekend were able to run on Monday. It's a lot. I mean, and, and you can't, I was saying to my mom, she was like, what do you have scheduled? Cause I just ran Boston and I was like, nothing. Like I'm doing my shakeout run with like my crew and then like, I'm not doing anything, but you could easily jam pack your schedule from like Thursday through race day with expo talks and special meetups. And like, it is easy to really easy to overschedule yourself. And I think that when you are, it's very important for a runner to understand kind of what their goal is and what they're hoping to accomplish. And look, if you want to go to one of these races and do all of the things, you're probably just going to maybe not have the freshest race day that you planned on, but like, that's okay. It's about the experience, not necessarily the time. I think it's important to remember that stress is stress, whether it's physical, emotional, whatever. And the kind of stimulation that comes with a major marathon weekend is very stressful, not in a, oh my God, I'm so anxious and stressed out kind of way, but just in an overstimulated kind of way. And so I think prioritizing your own schedule and your downtime and whatever you need before a marathon on those weekends is crucial if you want to have a good race experience. But I also think this goes back to the fact that I've done most of these majors through work, figuring out what you're goal is for a major marathon is really important. And I had to learn how to separate my, my PR goals and my personal running goals from the work experience. Because when I am going with a brand to say Tokyo, I'm expected to do certain things. And I wouldn't say no, because also they're amazing things generally, but I'm expected to do these events, to do these dinners, and you're on. You're I, In my case, I'm with a publicist throughout the trip. And generally, these are people that I really enjoy being around, but it still is work to some extent. And so that was really important for me going into Tokyo. I, I know I'm fit enough for a PR. I have a goal in mind. But when it came to that race, my number one goal was to get the six-star medal. If everything else went great, awesome. If I ran fast, that would be like icing on the cake. But I wanted my my non-PR goals for that race were to get the six-star medal, number one, just finish, and two, to enjoy the process. Because I'd run a couple races last fall where I didn't enjoy the process. I got to like mile eight and questioned why I was even there. 
And so I think when you're going into something like a major marathon where there is a lot of pressure on that weekend, and I think this can be especially true in Boston, which is a very challenging course, you have to figure out what is motivating you besides the time goal and kind of hone in on that before you cross the starting line to make sure you still enjoy that experience because these are for a lot of people once in a lifetime experiences you want to enjoy that you don't want to hate your life through half or more than half of that race so that was a big change that i made for tokyo and i'm really glad that i prioritized the non-pr goal and actually enjoyed the race so i can look back on it and be happy about getting that six star and not look back and think god i hated every second after mile 20. Talking with runners who register for majors and, uh, you know, go through charity, especially it seems like when you have that that fundraising aspect, like you've hit up all your friends and family for money, you're raising money for a cause that you believe in. I find that a lot of those runners tend to then attach like a an extra level of obligation, like, oh, I told my friends and family I was trying to run this time. And they gave me money. So now I'm going to really try to run that time. <laughs> so like, like, and like you said, running one of these races is just like a huge accomplishment. We're supposed to enjoy it. You may or may not have a time goal, but like I've, I've heard from enough runners who go into these races via, via the charity route that like are, have such a hard time adjusting for the race day conditions or adjusting based on how their training went because they told somebody that they were trying to run X time and they don't want to let their quote unquote, you know, the people who gave the money down. And I have to remind them, like people didn't give you money because they thought you were going to run a 420 or whatever your goal was. Like people gave you money because you're awesome and mm -hmm. you're running uh, this amazing race and you're raising money for this thing. And so that there's so much pressure already to achieve a marathon at all that I think people mm -hmm. put more pressure than they should on themselves, specifically when it comes to that aspect of running as a charity runner. So I have a funny story that is very relevant to that. Um, I did Berlin last fall for a second time. I had friends doing the race. I, no, it's a world record course. I thought it would be a great opportunity to go and send it and go after a big PR. And I don't know, I don't know what happened before the race. I think I had just been dealing with a lot of stress in my personal life, a lot of things that had just kind of ground me down and I didn't have that well of mental toughness to pull from once the race started. But I got to mile eight and I was like, oh, I don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to do this race at all today. <laughs> this is just not... And I started spiraling into this, what's the point of being here? I'm not going to get my goal time. I'm going to drop out. This is stupid. What's the point of even continuing? And unfortunately, Berlin is at such a different time zone than Denver, where I'm based. And so usually my friends are texting me motivation. It makes me feel like, you know, there are people there with me, even though they're not necessarily running with me or out in the crowds. Um, but so nobody was really texting me except for my friend, Megan, who lives in Australia. And so she's texting me all these wonderful, <laughs> motivating things. And finally, I think at mile 11, I called her and like took my phone out of my bra, called her. And she was like, oh, have you not started yet? And I was like, no, no, I'm 11 miles in. I'm going to drop out of the half. And she was like, why? Why would you do that? And I was like, I'm not going to hit my goal time. You know, there's no point in doing this you know, I don't want to be here. I'm going to just quit. And she was like, well, 
Don't take this the wrong way, but I literally don't care if you don't run your goal time. I don't care if you run a three-hour marathon or a seven-hour marathon. I'm proud of you for doing it. And I think you're going to be more mad at yourself if you drop out than if you finish in a time that wasn't necessarily what you wanted. And she was totally right. Totally just did a 180 on my, my mental, you know, my mindset at that moment. And I was kind of like, okay, if I can just get to 13, that will make the rest of it easier. I got to 13 and then I got to 20 and then I got to 23 and I still finished 16 minutes faster than the last time I ran that course. It wasn't a PR, but it was a course PR. And I think just being able to shift my mindset in that moment, thanks to her feedback, was so crucial to changing how I experienced marathons as a whole moving forward from then. I've run three since then and three, two, two since then. And they've all been more enjoyable because somebody told me that they don't care about my finish time. We as runners, we nitpick. We can look back at our splits and be like, oh man, mile 16, like, I, you know, blah, blah, this and that. And like, I had to pee. I lost two minutes because I had to pee. And like you said, like everybody else and even other runners, like I would never say like, yeah, you're mm-hmm. right. You shouldn't have stopped to pee. I can't believe you lost two minutes at mile 16. <laughs> like <laughs> we, yeah. the pressure we put on ourselves is absolutely ridiculous sometimes. I think we also tend to look at the negative and where we went wrong in every race. I mean, Tokyo was my PR. It was my fastest marathon of all 13. And I can still, and I'm very happy about it. Don't get me wrong, but I can look at it and I can see exactly where I lost my goal time. And I can point out the miles and I can say, this is what happened to me here. And this is what happened to me here. And maybe if I had done this, that wouldn't have happened, whatever. Um, I don't know why we focus on the negative so much when there are so many positives in there. I flew across the world. I ran a race I've been waiting to run for four years. I got my six-star medal. Why am I mad that I had one mile that I walked in, you know? Yeah, perspective, people. Perspective. (laughs) All right. So six courses, Two, I think, would be objectively challenging. Uh, Boston is a challenging course. New York is a challenging course. The other ones are pretty flat, though. Of the six courses, which do you think, in your experience, would you call, obviously marathons aren't easy, but the most conducive to a faster marathon? So I feel like I'm biased against Chicago, which I think maybe... The actual flattest, Berlin, I mean, obviously Berlin is a world record course. Um, Chicago is also a record-breaking course. I hated Chicago. It was 2021. It was so hot, so miserable. It just, (laughs) everything about that race day was not fun. So maybe I'll have to run it again sometime and, and give it a second chance. But honestly, I felt that Tokyo was the most conducive to a fast race. It has a pretty decent downhill in the first 5k and but not so aggressive like Boston where you're completely blowing up your quads i just felt like i was moving very effortlessly for those first you know 3 to 5 miles the first half of that felt like it flew by um and then the second half i think the the most elevation gain i saw in a mile was like 10 feet wow 
Like it just felt cruisy. Wow. So it made up for the jet lag. Is that what you're saying? Uh, the jet lag still hit pretty aggressively at like mile 23. <laughs> I got to that point and I was like, I just don't have it in me to dig any deeper right now. So, and also with some of these races, the kind of major differences aside from course profile is whether these races are a point to point or kind of a start and finish in basically the same place. Um, Boston's mm-hmm. a point to point. New York is a point to point. London's a point to point. Are the rest of them start and finish? And I know Chicago starts and finishes in the same place. What about Berlin and Tokyo? Uh, Berlin is also a big loop. Um, you basically do a giant circle throughout the city. And then Tokyo is its whole own beast. I mean, that that race has five out and backs. They're very long. Um, you're running past the other runners, which... So I was nervous about this to start with. First of all, people had warned me that the crowds in Tokyo were not comparable to the American European crowds. And like I said, I really feed off that energy. So I was nervous that that wasn't going to be there for me. And also people said that the out and backs were, you know, I think as a runner that can be kind of distracting, you know, you're not, I like going point to point. Um, And even in a loop, at least you're not seeing the same things over and over again. So I was a little nervous about running basically the same portions of a road multiple times. I actually loved it. I thought it was so cool that I could see the other runners. And um, I high-fived a friend, I think four separate times because he was running about 10 to 15 minutes ahead of me. And looking for him was a hugely welcome distraction. You know, I passed full miles just being like, where is he? Where is he? Can I spot him? Um, I saw the elites when I was at the 10k and they were at the halfway point, which was very exciting. Um, I don't, you don't get that experience in any other race. So even though I had been on the Berlin course, both times Kipchoge broke the world record. I didn't see it. You know, I had no, no sense of it. And, um, I also ran New York the same year that Shalane won, uh, broke the women's American women's drought. Uh, and I remember them playing it on the Jumbotron at mile 16, which was pretty cool. So as I was coming off the 59th Street Bridge, I could see that she had won. And I was like, oh, we are running two totally different races. Okay, <laughs> good for you. But Tokyo was really cool seeing the elites in action as I was running. And I was like, oh, wow, you are incredibly fast. Okay, you're going to be done before I get to where you are now. Every race has its, I mean, every, every course has its own challenges. Like, and I didn't know that about the Tokyo course. It's really interesting. I personally, depending on where the out and back is, it can be very motivating. There's something about, I remember I was running, mm-hmm. um, I ran a marathon about a year and a half ago uh, in Hartford, where I live nearby Hartford. And part of the course is an out and back. And I was having a really good day. But like for me to go be going out and then to see like the front, the the female front runners, like I was cheering for them. They were like, I don't know. Yeah. 45 minutes ahead of me in their finish time at least. But I was like, yeah, go, go, you know, and seeing these yeah. like really smooth looking, I was, it's, it's a boost. It's an adrenaline boost to, to see other people look so good running by you. Like it makes you kind of pick up your head a little bit and forget some of that fatigue. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true on both sides. I, I was cheering for the people faster than me, but then when I was on the back part of the out and back, I was cheering for the people who were still going out. I think it's just, 
a visual representation of how you're all in this together and you're all doing the same thing at the same time, no matter what your pace is, you're all out there, you're all kind of suffering on the same road together. And I think that's what makes running a unique sport compared to a lot of other sports out there. I I don't know any other sport where you can be on literally the, the same playing field as the pros, you know? I'm running the exact same course at the exact same time as Shalane Flanagan. She's just doing it a lot faster than me. She's going to be done it before me, but we're on that same road at the same time. So that I think is a really unique experience. And it's, it's kind of what I love about running that we all have these shared experiences versus I'm never going to be on a basketball court with LeBron or I don't know, some other sport. (laughs) Yeah, or like driving a race car, playing baseball or whatever. I'm not really swimming in the lane next to Michael Phelps. Like, it's just not how anything else seems to work. (laughs) Yeah, I was a gymnast growing up. I can understand the events, but I'm never going to be like competing at the same level or on the same, you know, gym floor as who's like, I can't even think of a good gymnast right now. (laughs) Allie Reisman. My mind went to Dominique my my first my thought for Simone Biles to be honest, that tells you how old I am <laughs> she was my favorite she and I have the same birthday but she's like four years younger than me and infinitely better at gymnastics than me so but you get what I'm saying it's <laughs> running kind of equalizes the playing field and you get to experience the same thing as the pros that you look up to so I think that's really cool mm-hmm. So you probably have your race day routine down pat by now. What are your secrets for taking on these major races? Like what's your race day look like before you cross that start line? Mm, That's a good question. I feel like it is different when I'm traveling. Um, Well, generally it starts the day before, you know, got to find a pasta dinner the night before. I try to get as much sleep as possible. Um, depending on the race morning, some races are a lot easier to get to Chicago, Berlin. Those are both so easy to get to the start line. Whereas New York, I'm up at three 45 waiting to start a race at, I think I started at nine 45 last year. I've started at 10 20 in the past. I mean, or 10 40. So that sort of depends, but Generally, I do a pretty light breakfast if it's on the earlier side. I like the Kodiak pancake cups. So I just like have to make sure my hotel has a microwave for that. Otherwise, I'm going to be scrambling last minute to find some other option. Um, And then I'll bring like a Cliff Bar or a spring energy gel to the start and eat that like maybe 30 minutes before I start running. Um, Otherwise, it's like it's not complicated. You know, it's just making sure everything's ready to go. I like running with headphones. So my music is all queued up. I've got my outfit ready the night before so I can sleep as much as possible and then just literally like roll out of bed and roll into it. Um, I think the biggest issue with the international races is bathroom, like the bathroom before starting the race. Just like your whole body is out of whack because of time zone changes and whatnot. Tokyo, I actually, I was waiting to use the bathroom in the, um, the corrals and the way they set up the corrals was just a little bit different than I was used to. And so they were closing my corral and I wasn't even close. And so people were like, you have to go, like, they're going to close your corral. You have to get out of the line now. And I was like, okay, okay. Like I'm too nervous to risk it. I'll just, I'll go, you know, in a porta potty on the course if I have to. And then when I was running, all the bathrooms were like a hundred to 200 meters off the course, because of course, Japan, like very nicely 
points out, you know, the exact directions you need in order to get to the bathrooms. And I was like, I can't, I'm not giving up potentially 400 meters just to go to the bathroom. Like I'm going to just hold this as long as possible. And it went away after like an hour, but that was not ideal. So I think that's the hardest thing to factor in when you're traveling internationally. It's just like all that kind of digestion stuff and hydration, it all gets a little out of whack and accounting for that can be difficult. But even just, I mean, domestically, let's say you live in the tri-state area and you run New York. I mean, how often do you wake up at 345 in the morning and then not start your long run until 10? Right? Like it's these little things that I think. Never. And it, it, at that point, you almost like you got to roll with the punches, right? Like it's going to be what it's going to be. And we're, and I think that sometimes we lose that. Like we get so, as runners, like we, we get so obsessed with like controlling all the variables that we assume that we actually have control over everything when obviously like we absolutely do not. And so, you know, the weather's going to be what it's going to be. Like your body's going to do what it's going to do. Like you just kind of be like, this is what I got and this is how it's going to go. And this is just part of my race day experience. So I think that's why I love the marathon and keep coming back to it because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how perfect your training cycle was or how well you nailed your nutrition you know, leading up to the race or how perfect your whoop says your sleep was, whatever it is. Once you get to race day, the marathon owes you nothing. So all you can do is adapt to whatever the race gives you that day. And I think that was very much the case at Boston this year. You know, people went into that so ready and then they got torrential downpours and somebody said it might've hailed at one point. Like, The temperature was colder than I would have liked. There was a headwind. I mean, all you can do is adapt to those circumstances and how well your race goes depends on how well you can adapt. If you are just miserable the whole time because you can't figure out how to work with the headwind or the rain, it's going to suck. That whole experience is going to suck. But if you can lean into it and say like, well, this is what I was given, like, at least the rain is cooler than, you know, an 80 degree New York marathon day, I'll take it. Then you're going to have a much better experience. And like having done so many of these majors now, you can't compare one marathon to another. They're just, it's just not, you can't say, oh, well, I ran a PR at, you know, CIM and then I trained harder, you know, so Boston is going to go even better than CIM did. Those are two totally different courses and totally different race environments. All you can do is just do the best with what you're given that day. That's the only thing in your control, how you react to the race. And I would even go as far to say that I don't know that you can compare the same course year to year as conditions are so different. Yeah. Like you said, you ran Chicago in 2021. I ran Chicago in 2022. Conditions in Chicago in 2022 were perfect. Emily Sisson broke the American women's record. Like right. they were gorgeous. But one year before exact same course, like you said, 80, it was 80 degrees. It was, you know, crazy humid. There were people who were hospitalized from dehydration. Right. So it's, you know, yeah. I had, I did a lot of debriefs with runners after that Chicago 2021. They're like, what went wrong? And I'm like, what do you mean? What went wrong? It was 80 degrees, you know, and it's, <laughs> It's, it's, it's one of those things that's like, you just kind of kind of shrug your shoulders and be like, all right, let's do this. Just, just try not to hurt ourselves. Yeah. I mean, perfect example. I ran New York 2021, a month after Chicago, Chicago was horrendous. 
four weeks is not a lot of time for recovery. I still sent it in Chicago. I still, I PR'd by eight minutes. I mean, I was trained for a much bigger PR, but I still had a big PR that day. And I went into New York and was like, I don't know, like what's, what's going to happen? I ran a marathon four weeks ago. My body hates me. And then I PR'd in New York another, I think it was like another six minute PR that day. And um, that was huge for me. Then I ran New York, a course that I know like the back of my hand a year later and ran 30 minutes slower because of the weather conditions. It had nothing to do with my training. It had everything to do with the fact that it was like 75 degrees, 100% humidity. People were dropping like flies from like mile eight on. So, you know, it is what it is. Of course, I wish it went better last year in New York because I had a miserable first half until I was able to just say like, we're not racing this at all. We're just, we're just going to have fun with this. But, um, but comparing it is such a disservice to yourself and your training. I was, I spectated New York last year and I was standing actually at the, uh, on, at like around mile 16, the bottom of the bridge, we do that loop around. And mm -hmm. I was standing there, I was wearing shorts and like a crew neck sweatshirt. And I was just standing there sweating. <laughs> I was just standing there sweating and thinking, oh my good Lord, my poor runner is out on that course. <laughs> it, that was, but it's November in New York. Like who expects it to be that warm? It just is, you know, climate change. Thank you very much. That was truly the worst physical experience I've ever had in a marathon. I mean, I think I got to like, it was like between the 10 K and 10 mile point where I was like, you're going to pass out or puke. Like you need to figure out how you're going to handle this situation. And so at mile 10, I ended up walking for a decent amount and just pouring water on myself, trying to bring my body temperature down. And then I was like, just get to 13. Once you get to 13, you're halfway. And then, you know, you can finish. And I think taking that time between 10 and 13 to sort of get myself back under my own control, you know, my body temperature came down mentally. I sort of, I had like figured out what my new goals for the race were. And by the time I got to 16 and got over the, the 59th street bridge there, I had a great second half like that. The final 10 miles up first Avenue and, you know, back into central park, I had a blast. I've never had that much fun on that part of the course. That's usually my worst part of the course. But um, I think taking that time to kind of reassess, okay, these goals are out the window. How can you salvage this race experience to enjoy it? Because it was my fifth time running New York. I wanted to get that fifth medal. What did I need to do to feel better and finish without wanting to die? Yeah, there's really no experience for the experience, for the experience of having been through these races and learning how to adjust in the race itself. Like I say, the first time mm -hmm. you run a marathon, you're just trying to figure out what it's all about, right? And then Absolutely. we can start to fine tune what the goals are and what the strategy is and all of that. But like, until you've just had that experience of what it takes to complete 26 miles and like how you respond physically and mentally and like all of that, that I, I just ran Boston and had a really tough race because I shredded my quads mm, and that <laughs> sucked. But um, oh, one of the things I was you really proud about runner. is that- me, right? And Kipchoge, right? He and I were the same. Um, yep. Is that I was so proud of my, it was my sixth marathon. It was, I was so proud of my ability to like adjust and control the things I could control. Like my hydration was on point. Like my, I fueled all the way through, like all these things that I, if that was my first marathon, I would not have been able to adjust the things that I needed to adjust. And, and I think that's one of the, the cool things about the marathon is that like, 
everyone you do is this massive learning opportunity, whether you learn it on some of the biggest stages of the world or a local race that's in your hometown. Like every marathon gives you the opportunity to learn something new about yourself and about who you are as a runner. That's what I love about it. And I think that's why so many people keep coming back to it because like, yes, you learn the things, oh, I should have fueled earlier and more often, or I shouldn't have gone out so fast. But you also learn things about yourself, like how you handle discomfort and what makes you give up when you get into that final 10K or what fuels you to to find that finishing kick. And I think a lot of those things, the the mental aspects of the marathon learning experience really help you in your real life too, not just with running. And so... I mean, that's why I keep going back to it. But I also think, you know, this was my, Tokyo was my 13th marathon. And I think it's the first one that I did right, if that makes sense. Like, I still have room to go to reach my goal. But it's the first race that I look back on and I'm like, oh, I executed that almost perfectly up until like mile 22, where things kind of went off the rails, but I can look at that and say, well, you were in Tokyo, you, you know, were halfway across the world. You didn't have a huge support team there with you. You know, these are all normal things that would make you flag at that point in the race. But I can also look at Tokyo and be like, that is a building experience. Like now I can build on that race because I know what it feels like to execute a marathon in a smart way. And not just like, I'm going to, you know, cross the start line like a bat out of hell and just see how long I can hang on. That's not a smart way to run a marathon. And I think it's very frustrating for people who like, because you can run, I mean, realistically, you can only run so many marathons a year, honestly, like safely. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there are some ultra runners who are super, super talented. But for most of us, we're looking at one, maybe two, possibly three marathons per year. And it just takes time to build that wealth of knowledge and experience. Like you can't just go out and run a marathon every day and like learn all the lessons all at once. You need to go through the process of like, trying and probably failing uh, maybe a couple times and then refining and coming back and trying again and doing something differently in your training. And you need a little bit of luck some of these days too. And so for everybody who feels like they haven't like figured out the marathon yet, it's not how it works. I think you spend your whole life trying to figure out the marathon. Yeah. I think the marathon takes patience because uh, I know you have, you and I have talked about this before. The idea of a redemption run and signing up for a marathon the second you finish one because you don't like your performance and you want to capitalize on your fitness. Like that's not how marathons work. Honestly, I run too many marathons. I would not recommend anybody run as many marathons as I've run in the amount of time that I've run them. You know, I've run, I think four in this 365 day year, you know, since last May, I ran four races. Don't do that. Not if you want to hit specific goals. Like if you have, if you have real fitness goals, which I do, but like, there's a reason that I'm not hitting them in the way that I would like to. And I think it's because I do too many of these that I don't have time to properly recover and then build up a stronger aerobic base before getting into specific training. That was one of the things I was really nervous about with Tokyo. I ran Berlin and New York back to back last fall. And then I found out that Tokyo was 100% happening this year. And I was like, shit, (laughs) like... I am not ready to run another marathon in March after running two in September and November, but I had a coach. We built up my training very strategically and I was actually able to have a really good race, but I think 
probably one of the reasons I didn't have the exact race experience that I wanted is because I was coming back from running two other marathons plus a marathon in the spring. It's really hard to ask that much of your body, unless you're a superhuman, which obviously there are a lot of athletes out there like that. But I think if you are a, a an average, normal runner, somebody who does it for fun, you're not getting paid to do this, you're out there as a hobby, which all of us are doing this as a hobby if we're not getting paid for it, you can't expect to go drop, you know, 10 minutes every time you run a marathon. That's not realistic. Yeah. The patience is, and depending on the year you get, like I was thinking about my own of the six marathons that I've run, I ran my first one and then I ran my second one slower. And then I ran my third one very fast. And then I ran my fourth one also very fast. And then my fifth one was slow. And then the one I just ran was also, so it's like, it is this kind of ebb and flow. Cause you were always in kind of the diff, this different yeah. place from where we are with our training and our life. Like you said, stress is stress. Like we want these things. We, we want these things to happen the way we want them to, but that I can tell you almost never actually turns out the way you want it to. Like I said, the marathon doesn't owe you anything, you know, like 26 miles is a massive undertaking. I don't care how fit you are. You're asking a lot of your body to cover that distance and to do that again and again without doing all of the other things you need to do to keep yourself healthy and recovered. It's just, you're just setting yourself up, up for disappointment and potentially injury. But I think it's so important to remember that running is not, it's not a linear journey and it shouldn't be a linear journey, you know? Because for all the reasons we've discussed, every race is different. You are at different points in your life. I mean, my my times go up and down. I ran my slowest marathon in seven years in New York last fall. And then I ran a PR four months later. So it's like, you. it's okay to be disappointed, I think. I mean, obviously everybody goes through the post-marathon blues. That's a real thing. But I think remembering the context of what you're doing and that, A, this is just running. You're going to have another opportunity to do it. And B, you still did something really impressive. So you have to appreciate that. Even if it wasn't what you wanted it to be, you still have to appreciate it. And then think about how you're going to take those learnings and apply them to a future race. Don't just sign up for something because you're mad that you didn't have the race day you wanted. And you know you think you're going to go send it two months later, you might actually end up being even more disappointed in that second race because you didn't give yourself the time you needed to recover. So I have to ask you when you're on the six star journey, is this something that you had to like register for separately at some point where you're like, Hey, Abbott world marathon majors, or did they pick up on it where they're like, we've noticed that you've signed up for a lot of our races. I don't actually remember in the beginning, but I know that when I got to like the fourth star, I did sign up on their, their website. You know, I registered all my races and said, you know, I'm, I'm on this journey. I've finished these four and they keep track of it. Um, I'm sure as the program has grown too, the emails have gotten more frequent. If you run a major, you know, they tell you, Hey, like congrats on finishing the New York marathon. Like you've got one star, you should register, you know, at our website. Um, but it really didn't matter until I knew that I was running Tokyo. Um, and that was when I went to the website, made sure that everything was there. I had to upload my uh, a copy of my registration for the Tokyo Marathon that I was officially in. I had a bib number. And then before the race, before the race, I had to make sure they had my bib number 
because that's important at the finish. And um, I double checked when I picked up my bib at the expo that I had whatever QR code or color or whatever that indicated that I was a six star finisher. And this, this was actually really surprising. I did not expect the emotions that came with it. You know, I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm running my sixth major. That's exciting. I know it's a big deal. Tokyo was a record setting year. They had, um, I don't remember what the total number was, but they got a Guinness book of world records record for the most six star finishers in a single race. Uh, I think they crossed 10,000 six star finishers in the Tokyo marathon this year. But um, when I finished and I had to go, let's say it was right at the finish line in order to get to the six star tent, I was like, okay, I'll just go pick this up and then go back to my friends. And when I got to the tent, it was just like, like you feel like a superstar, <laughs> you know, they're, they're so proud of you. Everybody is so impressed by it. They made a big deal about handing me the medal, putting the medal on me. And I like got very choked up. And then when I was walking back to my friends, multiple people stopped me to be like, congratulations. That is such an accomplishment. Like that is so impressive. We're so proud of you. Like all of these just really wonderful things. And I don't know if it's because I'm surrounded by very fast runners all the time who, you know, make marathoning seem like not that big of a deal. Part of my job is talking to, you know, the best runners in the world and the best coaches and going into it, it just didn't seem like that big of a deal. And it wasn't until they actually put the medal on me that I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is a really big deal. Did you run with the checklist? Cause that's what I, you know, see in Chicago and in Boston, you have people who are running and like, they have the list of all the majors are like the, this last one, the one I'm running right now, this is the last one that I need. Yeah. I did. At first that's I was like, awesome. Oh, I don't know. Like, is that like dorky to put that on? And I was like, no, I'm going to lean into this. Like, this is, I'm celebrating this. This is important to me. I've been waiting to run this particular race for a long time. So I'm going to lean into it. And, um, I made a point of like tapping people on the back if I saw them wearing the same one and saying congratulations or like good job or me too, or whatever, something to like have that kind of sense of camaraderie during the race. And people did that to me too. And I really liked it because again, it makes you feel like you're not in this thing alone. Like that, that's the thing that running comes down to for me. Yes. You're doing it yourself. Nobody else is physically picking each foot up and putting it, you know, one step ahead. You, you are the only person who can make yourself physically run, but it is very much a team or community driven sport for me. I mean, I don't think I would do it if I didn't feel like I had this community with me kind of suffering with me. What's the point? So what's next? Are you going to do a, is there like a 12 star? Can you go like round two, like platinum <laughs> this thing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm like halfway there. I think, um, what is next? I am potentially running New York again this year <laughs> because why not? And, um, I would like to qualify for Boston. That is very much my big goal. I'm pretty close, but I have put a lot of pressure on that in past years. And so I'm trying not to do that. And if it happens, it happens. I don't think I will be going into New York with that mindset, you know, of trying to be Q in New York. Um, but otherwise, just trying some different things. I'm trying a lot of trail running this summer. Um, I'm coaching a lot more, which is really exciting. And 
really just trying to immerse myself as much as I can into the running community because that's honestly where I feel most fulfilled. So we'll see how that shakes out. And of course, you are providing us excellent written content as a journalist. Uh, Ashley, thank you for sharing your story with us today. If somebody is not subscribed to your Substack or is a fan of your work, they should be. You should be, listener. Go find her right now. Ashley, where can people read your work and get connected with you? Um, So the best place to do that is probably Instagram. It's just my name, Ashley Mateo. Um, You can sign up for my Substack, which is ashleymateo.substack.com. And also you can find me in probably most of the magazines and publications that you read. I'm always popping up there with a story or two. It's always fun as I get more immersed in the running world myself, like and meet people like you and I'll read an article in Runner's World and be like, oh, it's Ashley. (laughs) Ashley wrote this (laughs) or, you know, whoever it is. But it's really fun. And it's, I mean, the running community is big, but it's also can feel nice and intimate sometimes because we're all, I think, like you said before, you know, no matter how, what your pace is, we're literally all running the same races, the same courses together. And that does foster such an incredible, incredible sense of camaraderie across the times that we all run. And it's really nice to think that we are all in this together, no matter what our history or background or where we're trying to get to. Yeah. And I think that's actually to bring it back to the majors one more time. That's one of the things I've loved the most about the majors. I can show up in Berlin or Tokyo or London, wherever, and there will be runners that I recognize, whether it's I recognize them from social media or I've met them through work, whatever the the story is, it does it makes the world a lot smaller. And then it's, you keep seeing the same people at these different races and it's just, oh, you again. Hi. <laughs> yeah. We're in and this like, again. What's better than showing up, you know, in a city across the world and seeing somebody that you recognize from your last race or because you've connected over social media or because I, whatever because you've read their article in Runner's World. There's, I mean, it just brings everybody together. And that's what I love about it. Ashley, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate having this conversation. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.